But when I arrived in politics and I was listening at all the challenges we are dealing with and, you know, all every all the initiatives we are trying to put in place to support the most vulnerable in different ways, wow, it became obvious that we still have to fight hard to uh, allow women and girls to have access to the same opportunities, uh, as well as for our newcomers, indigenous communities, and many underrepresented groups who still need strong voices to open doors for them and once again allow them to have the same opportunities. Welcome to the third episode of The Diversity Imperative, a podcast dedicated to unearthing the agriculture sector's potential. We'll talk with diverse voices and industry leaders to motivate listeners to take their organizations, whether it's the family farm or a life science company, to the next level when it comes to stewarding their most important resource, people. My name is Hannah Conchu, and I am a grain farmer from Clooney, Alberta. And I'm Erin Gowerluck, and I lead a national grower association in the nation's capital. Our goal each episode will be to dig into some great conversations that go beyond 280 characters and then seek to inspire a broader dialogue engaging with all people in our sector, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, or sexual orientation. Through rich and candid conversations, which consider a variety of perspectives, we look forward to exploring ways to overcome barriers and make diversity and inclusion a topic that everyone is comfortable talking about. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing the conversation that we had with the Honourable Mary-Claude Bibeau, Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food, that we're releasing to celebrate International Women's Day. This year's theme for International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge, a commitment to yourself to challenge inequality and to speak up when you see bias or discrimination. Knowing that we all have the ability to influence what goes on around us is powerful, so I am all about this year's theme. In today's conversation with Minister Bibeau, we discuss her path to politics and the agriculture sector. And she unveils the government's new 50-30 challenge, which encourages Canadian organizations to increase the representation and inclusion of diverse groups within their workforce. Our conversation with Minister Bibeau also includes a tough question that you and I have debated quite a bit over the years. You're referring to the one about the value of establishing targets, Hannah, as a way to measure progress? That's the one. (laughs) Is it just me or do you feel like this debate has evolved over the last couple of years. So often any discussion around the establishment of performance metrics or what some refer to as quotas, this would often be met with significant pushback from men and women alike. And while I think that that pushback still exists, I get the sense that increasingly it's becoming too hard to ignore study after study that points to the quantifiable benefits that organizations experience when their boards and leadership teams reflect the people that they serve. And I think the fact that we haven't seen significant movement on our scorecard in this regard, and definitely not since I've been paying attention, I think this means that this hasn't happened organically or on its own. So the question becomes, how do we get there? And I think that the conversation has evolved. And I think that there are are a number of reasons for that. First of all, as you stated, Hannah, I think more organizations are simply going beyond just examining the qualifications required to successfully fill a role. They're, they're taking a more holistic view of how teams function. You know, we know, for example, according to a study that I shared with you that was done by Deloitte in 2019, that teams perform better when they're diverse and inclusive. 
So it's no longer just a moral imperative. A lack of diversity now puts our organizations at a competitive disadvantage. But I think it goes beyond even that. You know, recent events, we look at what happened in the United States and in turn here in Canada in recent months. months. And there's an expectation, I think now, that organizations have a responsibility to go beyond simply paying lip service you know, including the words diversity and inclusion in, in your organization's strategic framework or guiding principles is a good first step. And we applaud those who have done that, but it's, it's no longer enough. Your members, your stakeholders, your shareholders, your employees are watching you. And, and if you can't clearly articulate those com your commitment to those, to those values by demonstrating how you plan to measure progress, you're going to lack credibility and this inaction is going to have its consequences. Mm -hmm. You can't manage what you don't measure sort of thing. We talk at the top of each episode about the need for Canada's egg sector to steward our most important resource, people. And I wonder to what extent a lack of action in this space, especially at a time like the one we find ourselves in now, will affect an organization's ability to retain or to attract the best talent to come work for them. Yeah, and Hannah, you and I have had a healthy debate about this over the years. So where are you now in your thinking around targets? We have, and I, I think the reason that you and I were able to have those conversations about this, Erin, is because we were, and we still, of course, are both firmly rooted in the value that organizations need to work towards this. But where we, we went back and forth was how to get there. So I think for me personally, when, when we used to talk about mandating a quota or setting a target, this made me really uncomfortable because I knew that it made other people uncomfortable. So maybe it wasn't a productive way to, to get there, but I've grown to not give so much weight to that because we need to get uncomfortable for this conversation to go anywhere. And on a personal awareness level, if you are feeling uncomfortable, if this is pushing you out of your comfort zone, that's where the magic is about to happen. Yeah, I like that. You know, I, I think a responsible organization is going to ensure that their strategic priorities are a reflection of the organization's core values, but in turn, that those priorities need to be directly linked to the activities included in each employee's work plan, because how else do we measure progress? So if diversity and inclusion are stated values, then you have to ask yourself, what have we done as an organization to lift those words off the paper and into the organization's culture? Yes, exactly. And when, so you just mentioned culture. And when you talk about culture, to me, this is the living, breathing part of diversity that we can think of as inclusion, which is arguably the most important part of what we're working towards. So do the people who have a seat at the table, do they get to contribute equally to the conversation? Are they valued? Do they get to show up to board meetings and show up to work? And do they get to be themselves? So as always, Erin, you make such good points about this. So should we get to our conversation with Minister Bebo? Let's do it. And happy International Women's Day to our listeners. Minister Bibo needs no introduction to our listeners, many of whom have had the opportunity to meet and to speak with her. But I do want to highlight a couple of items from her CV that we may be less familiar with, but are particularly relevant to today's discussion. Minister Bibo is the first woman to serve in the role of Canada's Agriculture Minister. And prior to her joining the agriculture sector, she served as Minister of International Development and La Francophonie, where under her leadership, 
Canada adopted a feminist international assistance policy. Her commitment to the empowerment of women and girls internationally earned her the World Vision Voice of Children Award in 2019 and the Care Global Leaders Network Humanitarian Award in 2018. Thank you for joining us today, Minister Bibeau, for this important and timely conversation. I'm very happy to be with you today. Thank you for the invitation. I'd like to start our conversation by asking you to speak to your personal experiences. Um, you know, as a woman in politics, as a politician, who in your previous role was involved in advocating for the interests of women around the world? Hmm. Um, maybe I can say to start with that I did not know I was a feminist before entering in politics because I've been, I think my generation and in my family with my uh, colleagues at school or even my colleagues at work, I never really felt that I had to fight harder. But when I arrived in politics and I was listening at all the challenges we are dealing with and, you know, all, every, all the initiatives we are trying to put in place to support the most vulnerable in different ways, wow, it became obvious that we still have to fight hard to uh, allow women and girls to have access to the same opportunities uh, as well as for our newcomers, indigenous communities, and many underrepresented groups who still need strong voices to open doors for them and once again allow them to have the same opportunities. What has your experience been like serving then as Canada's first female agriculture minister? Well, um, I was surprised when I arrived. Um, you know, when you think about agriculture, when you think about farming, it's kind of obvious that um, you think about family farms to start with, and you know that women are really, really involved in the business. And then I was only meeting men in the beginning. All the representatives, not all, but most of the representatives of the different associations were men, men and I would say experienced men. And I thought, well, I think we need a more diverse voices to represent the sector. Um, and having, you know, worked on this feminist policy so heartfully, can I say, <laughs> for years, I was very convinced that any organization is stronger when they have uh, diversity around their decision table, where no matter the sector. So I thought it was important to advocate and bring more women around these tables and more young people as well. Because when we think about the future of agriculture, we need to hear the voice of, of the new generation. Do they see agriculture the same way as we do? Maybe not. Uh, so I think it's very important to bring diverse voices around any and every decision-making table. We want to ask you a bit more about how you've used your leadership to encourage diverse voices in some of your sector activities a little later. But first, I want to um, turn to the 50-30 the challenge, uh, an initiative that your government uh, laid out last December. So this initiative is intended to encourage Canadian organizations to increase the representation and inclusion of diverse groups within their workforce and leadership, while highlighting the benefits of giving all Canadians a seat at the table. 
We'd love for you to tell us a bit about this challenge, how organizations can get involved and the type of support that they can expect to receive when they do. Well, it's really um, a challenge. We want to encourage uh, small, medium, large businesses, as well as nonprofit organizations and um, uh, school academic uh, institutions, uh, anyone who has a board, who has a senior management team, uh, to take this challenge at heart and um, through, through the, the coming years and the, the next uh, opportunities they have to uh, make some changes around the, their board, to bring 50% of women around the table and having 30% uh, of, of the board representing diversity. So this is the, the challenge and uh, we are encouraging all these organizations to register and they will have uh, the opportunity to access um, digital tools, uh, maybe get some grants and contribution, um, develop uh, strategies uh, for, for their, their diversity, create uh, membership programs, for example. Uh, we intend to have a recognition award system. And uh, so that type of initiatives that will be uh, coming in support of uh, the, the challenge. Because once again, uh, I was about to say we believe, but it's proven. We, we have evidence to prove that when you have a board that is diversified, you make better decisions and uh, you have better economic results as well. So you mentioned, of course, that there would be some supports available for organizations if they take on this challenge. I think that's probably going to be great to help support groups when they, they uh, hopefully join on to this challenge. But I noticed from some of the information available that there might be different streams for the organization. So would that be sort of to help target larger or smaller size organizations or that sort of thing? What are those three streams about? Um, big organizations, businesses with uh, more than 500 employees, smaller private uh, businesses, and uh, nonprofit organizations and institutions. So these are the three streams. But I think the biggest benefit um, for these organizations to, um, to take on this challenge is really to see their business grow. And uh, I really think it's a, it's a good business decision. It's good to, um, in terms of, of social responsibility, of course, but it's also good business. And we see that the, the initiative has been fairly successful, I think, to date, Hannah. We're looking at about, a, about 700 organizations that have yes. signed up to take this challenge. Already. So let's talk a bit about why, why this work is important for all of us, for you in particular, maybe. You know, I, I think we can agree that it goes beyond the right thing to do. You know, fairness and equity are good things. But can you speak a little more? You've provided a couple of examples already, but talk to us a little more about what you think the business case here is. You know, the dollars and cents for organizations who are considering this challenge. Hmm. And I know that there are data uh, and evidence um, out there. And when I was Minister of International Development, it was so clearly demonstrated that when uh, a country has <laughs> um, um, more um, equ equity, but it's not only that, it's um, trying to find the good words, but where women and girls can, can develop their full, full potential and, and participate fully to the community, um, 
the, these countries um, have a better life expectation and, and a better uh, economic situation as well. And it's the same for private businesses. Um, and this is why we are trying to encourage and, and to make um, leaders, business leaders and community leaders realize and take on the challenge and because um, we, we need, you know, the, the top of the organization to believe in that and to lead by example and to make changes happen. I, 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 and I get that. I think, it's, I think it's a great parallel that you can draw between what's happening, the success in some countries around the world and how that may apply to an organization, for example. We've, we've seen, Aaron and I, we constantly are passing back and forth resources that are talking about the, the business case that you've talked about. And we hope that that is something that organizations embrace because it's not just a feel good, we need, you know, we need to do this because it's the right thing. There's, you know, there's a a business, a real business case for it. So we hope that that's one of the reasons that organizations want to embrace this challenge. So you've served for almost two years now as agriculture minister, and you've been very engaged with the sector. On a number of occasions, you've talked about the need to make the sector more inclusive, and we know that you've used your influence to make this happen as much as possible. So one way that I'm very familiar with that you've done that is by requesting that stakeholder groups put forward names from underrepresented groups for roundtable meetings, and when it comes time to put names forward for government-held committees like the Western Standards Committee. The challenge here, though, is that the most of the grower groups and the associations that nominate to committees like that, they are already not that diverse themselves. So it is then a challenge to put names forward um, that are um, diverse. And I would say that this is probably a, a very consistent challenge that exists, you know, when provincial groups are nominating to their national boards as well. So do you see these challenges mentioned as part of the reason why the 50-30 challenge may be particularly important for Canada's agriculture se sector? We'd also, uh, we're also very curious to know what you hope the agriculture sector can accomplish with this challenge. Well, knowing that there are so many women involved in agriculture, they, are, they know the business, that's for sure. Um, so we have to find ways to get them interested in leadership position and to make them feel welcome. And often when I do roundtables with women in agriculture, I hear uh, work and family balance, of course. Um, and they, they more often uh, will stay home uh, with the kids and either their husband or father would go to the Congress and you know, uh, be part of the, uh, the, the leadership of, of their association. And I'm sure that these men can also take care of the family and let her go to the Congress and be part of the, uh, the committees. And that would be great to have a more balanced uh, representation. So I think it's one thing that I could do as minister is to insist that when I, may, I do roundtables or I meet with an association or another, I want to be sure that they send a certain number of women and, and young people. Uh, and then it makes them realize that, oh, yes, they have a voice and we have young people and women in our business. Um, so it's uh, challenging. And I've, no, I, I've noticed I, I cannot uh, affirm and I have not seen data around that, but I have a feeling that we see more and more women um, as the director of the association. Uh, not as much on the board yet, but we, I, 
I feel that there's a little tendency to have more women uh, as director of the organization. But uh, once again, what we are looking for is, is balance. Uh, we don't want to take over. <laughs> we just want to see uh, a greater diversity around where the decisions are made. We've talked about that, yeah, the idea of balance and equity a lot with our, our podcast partner, uh, Dan Wright, who joined us for episode one, because a lot of times we get the sense that that's the, some of the sort of intimidation that happens with this conversation, but it's not about that at all. It's about making sure that everyone has equal opportunity to participate and contribute and, and feel valued. So we, we're totally on board for that, Minister. I want to pick up on your comment, Minister, when you talk about your insistence to see some of these groups that would normally be underrepresented, and you use women as an example, in these meetings with you. You know, on every episode of the Diversity Imperative, we ask one tough question of our guests, and then we invite our listeners to weigh in on social media or on our website. So our tough question for you, Minister, is a good follow-up to what you just said. It's in regards to what we're seeing in other countries around the world, and what they do when it comes to implementing bold initiatives, if you will, in order to move the needle on representation. So, for example, from the Globe and Mail's recent Power Gap series, if you've been following that, we know that France, for example, has mandated that 40% of corporate board seats need to be filled by women. California is the first state to say that companies must have at least one female director on their board. And this article, it's a good one. It goes on to mention a few other initiatives that countries are enacting. And we're going to post a link to this, Hannah, a link to this article in our show notes. But our tough question to you is this. If we're going to see progress, should we, in your view, be prepared to establish measurable targets when it comes to diverse representation on our boards and senior leadership teams? Hmm. Um. I think that it's necessary to have targets if we want to achieve. Uh, there might be a difference of vocabulary between, let's say, a target and a quota, for example. It's not necessarily mandatory, but we have a target that we want to achieve. That's for sure. And um, it's, um, it might be different if when you, we think about elected position or nominations. I can tell you that uh, for the last five years, uh, we are as a government proceeding to hundreds of nomination uh, from senators to uh, the, the, the board of the, the Grain Council, for example, and so many boards and, and groups, uh, not, not groups, but uh, well, we have a lot of nominations to make as a government. And we do follow up very, very closely. We have a chart, how many women, how many men, how many uh, underrepresented groups we have nominated through the year, through the, and we are following it. And sometimes we, are, we, we find that, oh, we are maybe, you know, lagging a little bit uh, on, on this community. We, we need to try harder to identify a representative of the indig indigenous communities, for example. Uh, and actually, even Francophone and Anglophone, we are following <laughs> the, the targets as well. Um, and this really uh, forced us to make more efforts in terms of reach out. When we open um, the, the, the position and we, we are trying to identify the right person to apply for a certain position, 
we will double down on our efforts to reach out and, and to uh, try to interest, raise the, get the interest of, of these uh, communities that we are looking for to be represented on the board. For example, Farm Credit Canada. Uh, of course, I need bankers, but I don't only need bankers. <laughs> uh, I need people who can understand the, the financial system, of course, but uh, it's important to... Um, to define the profile you are looking for. And I think that personally, when I, I'm looking for uh, a chair or a commissionary, someone who it will be, uh, for example, their full-time position, uh, I will look more at the individual profile with, to try to get all the skills in this same person and experience. When I look at a board, I will look at the profile of the board. So making sure that we have uh, the, the right number of person with experience in finance in, in I don't know, justice and uh, agriculture itself, but also that we have this diverse, that diversity. We try to have this balance between men and women. And actually we are looking, we are taking on the challenge of 50, 30 more or less depending uh, of the board, but so this is the way I see it. Pers individual profile in some cases and, and board profile as well. I appreciate that breakdown. And you've spoken in part, I don't know if you have anything more to say on this, but you've spoken in part to something that I think is, is so critical because so often I think we establish these targets, whatever that may be, and we're so quick to say, we didn't get the applicants right? We didn't get the number of women didn't apply for this particular job or this board seat. And so here we are again with an all male board, that legacy continues because we simply didn't get the applicants. But what you're saying is that it's incumbent upon you and your government in this case, to do the work to ensure that the outreach is there. I don't know if there's anything more that you would add to that in terms of what you think organizations should and could be doing to ensure that we have that talent pool from which to draw? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it, it falls uh, on, on the shoulders of the leader. Uh, we have to reach out. We have to reach out and to ask the team to, um, to open up the, uh, the, the call for candidacy again if needed and to reach out to different organizations and, and try to uh, get in, in, how should I say, in, in the weeds of this network <laughs> to identify the right people. And we have also to build the pipeline. We have to bring women at, you know, and, and whatever, you know, the group we are identifying as not being enough present um, and, and support them so they can um, go one step after the other and, and this is what I call build the pipeline. Make sure that we have these people who are getting the, the experience uh, at different level and that will be ready to, uh, to take a, a chair position uh, eventually, for example. I love your take on this, Minister. And I think one way that I sort of summarize what I've heard you say is this conversation around intentionality. Mm -hmm. Diversity and inclusion, it does not happen on its own. And what you've just described is a process that actually takes a lot of work. So you're, you know, setting a target, you're, you're measuring it, you're checking in on it. Like it's, a, it's something that we can't just 
you know, flip a switch and the next day all these boards and organizations are going to have the, the most ideal mix of people. So I, I, I just think that that's one of the most important things about this conversation is that it takes work and intentionality and it is not easy, but we know it's, it's so worth it. So I appreciate hearing all of that intention and everything that you're doing. And we also, you know, so much we appreciate the take that you have on this because no matter whether we're talking about, you know, mandatory measures or, or targets or whatever the words are that we want to use. It's definitely a conversation that has a lot of sides to it. And sometimes it can get really get people going on this topic of, of um, quotas, if you will. But we've, we've been asking ourselves this question, is this what it's going to take? Do we have to, you know, make some bold moves to see some real change? So we spend, just like we have been, we spend a considerable amount of time talking about who gets a seat at the table. Uh, much like the goals that the 5030 challenge aspires to. And Aaron uh, found this great study by Deloitte this week that talks about how in these same conversations, we need to start talking about inclusion just as much as we're talking about diversity, because that's also part of this winning strategy for governments, for organizations. Um, so we, Aaron and I, we're both looking forward to digging into that side of this conversation as well in future episodes. So turning our focus a bit more to inclusion. So not just doing a head count, but thinking about that, that next step. Yeah, how those people, those diverse perspectives come into the conversation, right? How we make space for them. Thank you very much for your time today, Minister. We really appreciate your insights in this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you and take care of you. All right, friends and colleagues in the agriculture sector, we want to know if you're up for the challenge. We'll link to the 5030 challenge on our website so you can learn more. And if you or your organization decide to take this on, and we hope that you do, we'd love to hear from you. Share your commitment with us, and we'll find some time during season one for you to share your experience here on the diversity imperative. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to the third episode of the diversity imperative. Hannah and I look forward to our next conversation in a few weeks' time. Until then, please visit our website, diversityimperative.com, to weigh in on this episode's tough question. And we'd love to hear from you on your social media of choice. You can find Hannah and I at Diversity in Ag on Twitter and Diversity Imperative on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time. <laughs>